Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello again, and welcome back to Genestory. We agreed to do this. I'm your host, John. Last month, we discussed the Armenian Genocide, and this month, we'll be discussing the most infamous of modern genocides, the Holocaust. Now, before we really dive into the meat of what happened in the Holocaust, we have to go back to the previous World War, World War I, which ended November 11th, 1918, on what was once called Armistice Day and what we now in America call Veterans Day. The Treaty of Versailles formally ended World War I and was signed on June 28th, 1919. The treaty was absolutely horrible for Germany, and this is going to become very important in the intervening decades. The harshness of the treaty was required by France out of fear of another German war. You see, Germany didn't start World War I, but they definitely stayed in it the longest, and the German military was horrifically powerful. And it will become horrifically powerful again, but that's a story for a little bit later. The population and territory of Germany was reduced by 10%, and Germany had to give up all of its overseas colonies and captured territories. There was a special clause in the treaty called the War Guilt Clause that meant that Germany had to take sole responsibility for the war that included 32 countries. Germany also had to pay roughly $10 billion in reparations, reparations that they only finished paying back in the year 2000. Yes, you heard that correctly. 2010, almost a hundred years spent paying off those reparations. Although, to be fair, they stopped paying it during the late 20s and 30s because the Great Depression hit everyone. And then once Hitler took control, he said, no, no thank you, we will not be paying this. So they didn't really start paying them back in earnest until probably the late 50s, early 60s. Still, $10 billion is a lot of money to shell out. The German army was also restricted to 100,000 men, and they were limited in the number of ships, planes, and subs they could have. The idea was that Germany would never be powerful enough to wage a war on that kind of scale again. It just didn't work out that way. The German people absolutely hated the treaty, and no one can really blame them for that. They said, the Germans did, that it had been dictated to them. They maintained that they had never actually surrendered in the war. An armistice had been agreed to, a ceasefire, and then they had been forced by the other 31 countries in the war to accept all of the terms of the Treaty of Versailles. Horrifically outnumbered like that, there was nothing Germany could do to fight against it. They said that the treaty would destroy their economy, and they were absolutely correct. The Treaty of Versailles will become one of the primary reasons for World War II. So now that we've gotten one of the primary causes of World War II, we're going to have to shift our focus over to another one, Adolf Hitler. Hitler was born April 20th, 1889, and he died April 30th, 1945. He voluntarily enlisted in the Bavarian army at the start of World War I and was wounded at the Battle of the Somme. Um, he got hit with a lot of mustard gas and it got in his lungs. It just unfortunately for everyone didn't wind up killing him. But he wound up becoming a highly decorated soldier 
Archer. He was awarded the Iron Cross Second Class, the Iron Cross First Class, and the Black Wound Dash, which was Germany's equivalent of the Purple Heart. None of this is to go towards saying anything positive about Hitler's character, just that as far as the people of Germany were concerned, he was a minor hero when World War I ended because of how decorated of a soldier he was. Hitler believed wholeheartedly in the German stabbed-in-the-back myth, uh, that Germany was utterly undefeated in the field, which is by and large true. The German army made a good showing of itself during the war, but that civilian leaders, Marxists, and Jews had surrendered and destroyed German military might. Hitler stayed in the army after the war because he was uneducated and had no professional skills. Um, he, as many of you probably know, tried to get into art school in Bavaria at one point and failed because Hitler specialized in landscapes and, and the more highly regarded style of art at the time was portraiture and he just didn't have any skill in painting people. So when the war was over and he stayed in the army, he was given the job of infiltrating the German Workers' Party, the DAP. Hitler's first record of violent anti-Semitism comes in the form of a letter that he wrote in 1919, wherein he says, the aim of the government must unshakably be the removal of the Jews altogether. So the writing on the wall or the writing in the letter was there decades before Hitler came to power, just people ignored it because no one thought that this angry, shouty man was actually serious about the things that he was angrily shouting about. In 1921, the German Workers' Party changed its name to the National Socialist German Workers' Party, or the Nazis. Hitler himself designed the classic swastika flag. He became party chairman on July 29, 1921. The vote was 533 to 1. I don't know whatever happened to that one guy who voted against Hitler's uh, party chairmanship, but I can only assume that he was killed. On November 8, 1923, Hitler attempted a coup of the German government. This is the famous Beer Hall push. He marched into a local beer hall and announced that his revolution had begun. It had not. No one cared. No one other than his fellow Nazis, that is, but that wasn't nearly enough people to overthrow the entire government. So he was arrested in 1924 and sentenced to five years in prison. He only served nine months of his sentence before being released on parole, but during that time, he dictated his magnum opus, Mein Kampf, or My Struggle, as it's translated uh, into English, although the original title was Four and a Half Years of Struggle Against Lies, Stupidity, and Cowardice. It just got truncated to My Struggle. The book was an autobiography, a, a memoir, uh, and the story of Hitler's ideology, how he came to believe what he believed. Um, throughout it, he described Jews as germs and as international poisoners. Now, Hitler was appointed Chancellor of Germany on January 30th, 1933, and on February 27th, 1933, the German Reichstag was set on fire. The Nazis blamed it on a communist plot, but some historians believe that it's possible that the Nazis set the fire themselves. I am one of these historians. It seems the most likely series of events given what would follow. The Reichstag fire spurred the German government to pass legislation curtailing the rights of their citizens and by May of 1933, Hitler was a dictator in complete control of the German government. Once he had assumed power, Hitler began rearming Germany and building his army back up to its former glory. He established treaties with Japan and Italy, and in 1938, Hitler encouraged ethnic Germans in Czechoslovakia to revolt and join his new empire. Not wanting another war, 
British Prime Minister Neville Chamberlain agreed to let Hitler keep the Sudetenland in Czechoslovakia. This policy came to be called appeasement, and it's one of the stupidest compromises that has ever happened in world history. World War I had so devastated Europe, though, that no one wanted to fight another war. There just simply wasn't the political will to get people to agree to fight again. Now, World War II would officially begin in 1939 when Germany invaded Poland. This led Britain to finally declare war on Germany. In late September 1939, Hitler and Stalin signed the German-Russian Non-Aggression Pact, also called the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And yes, you heard the name Molotov there. It's the same guy who will at one point or another become famous for the creation of the Molotov cocktail. Poland fell quickly as Germany invaded from the west and the Soviet Union invaded from the east. They just simply couldn't stand up to these two superpowers. On April 9th, 1940, Germany invaded Belgium and the Netherlands using a tactic called Blitzkrieg, literally translated as a lightning war. Blitzkrieg carried them all the way through to France, eventually taking Paris, and Germany then continued to expand throughout Yugoslavia and Greece, seeking what they called Lebensraum, or living room. The German language is pretty cool. They have a long tradition of uh, what are called portmanteaus. They just take two words and smush them together to make a new one. So Lebensraum is literally the words for living and room smushed together. Same with Blitzkrieg, the words for lightning and war just smushed together to make a new word. Their word for uh, hospital is Krankenhaus, sick house. Uh, but my favorite German word has got to be Kummerspeck, which is uh, grief and bacon smushed together to form a word that doesn't have a clean English translation. What it means in context is weight that you gain from overeating because you're depressed, but the literal translation is just grief bacon, and that's frankly a little delightful even in spite of what the word actually means. To return to the events of the 40s, though, despite his alliance with the Soviet Union, Hitler invaded their territory on June 22, 1941, in what he called Operation Barbarossa. Germany was now fighting on European, Asian, and African fronts. The fascist Italian government fell in July of 1943, though there would still be Germans fighting against the Allies in Italy until 1945. The German invasion of the Soviet Union failed for the same reason that Napoleon's invasion failed. Neither of their troops were prepared for the harsh Russian winter. The last German troops in Russia surrendered January 31st, 1943. This is one of the hard and fast rules of history. Don't wage a land war in Russia, unless you're the Mongols, but the Mongols are the great exception to much of history's hard and fast rules. The United States, entered the war following the Pearl Harbor attack by Japan. The U.S. didn't really care about German expansion or about the plight of the Jews in Europe, uh, as is evidenced by the fate of the Spirit of St. Louis, but we just couldn't stand for the Japanese to bomb a Hawaiian naval base, so we went to war against Japan, which brought us into war against Germany because Germany and Japan were allies. 353 planes attacked Pearl Harbor and destroyed 19 ships and nearly 200 American planes. On June 6, 1944, the Allied invasion of Europe began. D-Day began at Normandy Beach in France with 156,000 British, Canadian, and American soldiers. The D-Day invasion caused Germany to pull the majority of its forces away from the east to combat this new threat. This would 
ultimately lead to Germany losing on their eastern front against the Soviets. One of the really cool things about Normandy Beach is that today, roughly 4% of Normandy Beach is made up of magnetic shrapnel that's eroded down into sand-sized chunks. That's how fierce the fighting was on D-Day. They exploded so many bombs and uh, shot so many bullets that 4% of the beach is metal. An aerial bombing campaign preceded the land invasion of Germany in February 1945. The war is quickly drawing to a close. And I promise that we'll get to the actual Holocaust once we're done here, but it was important to set up all this context first. By the time the Allied forces had made their way to the capital, the Soviets had occupied much of Germany and Hitler was dead of suicide. He'd shot himself in the head on April 30th 1945 in his Berlin bunker. Hitler might have been defeated, but Japan refused to surrender just yet, and so World War II would continue. Uh, casualties in the Japanese theater of war were so severe that the U.S. feared an actual invasion of Japan proper. They thought that the Japanese would fight to the last man, woman, and child, so we decided to drop two atomic bombs on civilian city centers in what's one of the largest war crimes ever committed by any government ever. We're not going to go really into detail on the invasion of Japan, and we're not going to talk too much more on the atomic bombs. We'll probably revisit that in a later episode, but who knows? Now for the Holocaust. The word Holocaust comes from the Greek roots holos, meaning whole, and kostos, meaning burned. Um, the Holocaust refers to the systematic destruction of Jews, Romani, the LGBT community, Jehovah's Witnesses, communists, and the disabled, amongst others, between 1933 and 1945. Between 11 and 12 million people were killed during this 12-year period. About 6 million Jews and then 5 to 6 million of all of the other targeted groups. The Jewish community calls this period the Shoah. Um, a lot of groups have different names for the Holocaust. The Romani call it the Horajmos or uh, fragmentation. Um, but most scholarship on the Holocaust is just going to call it the Holocaust. Now, the Holocaust didn't start with mass killings in gas chambers. It began with discrimination, dehumanization, and hateful rhetoric against certain targeted groups of minorities. Now, dehumanization is a word that means to remove from someone the positive aspects of human life. It's when we refer to a group of people as something other than human, as monsters, poison, vermin, a disease, etc. Hitler was obsessed with the idea of a pure German or Aryan race. He felt that the Jews were a threat and a poison that could destroy that pure Aryan race. So when Hitler first began consolidating his power, he saw communists and socialists as his biggest threat. Those would be his first targets. Dachau, the first concentration camp, was set up to house communist political prisoners. Dachau was set up in March of 1933. And by July, the concentration camps held over 27,000 people. Hitler and the Nazis also held many public rallies and book burnings. They burned books written by Jews, communists, the LGBT community, etc. Anything considered subversive was destroyed. One of the largest book burnings involved the public destruction of all the research and archives of the Institute of the Science of Sexuality in Berlin. 20,000 books and 5,000 images were burned in front of a crowd of 40,000 people. The Institute was doing some of the earliest modern transgender research and gender-affirming surgery. Over the next few years, Hitler would pass a series of laws slowly stripping Jews of their rights. They were dismissed from civil service, their businesses were closed, Jewish lawyers and doctors had their clients taken away. These were 
called the Nuremberg Laws. Under the Nuremberg Laws, anyone with at least three Jewish grandparents was considered a Jew. If you had only two, you were called a Mischlinge, or half-breed. This anti-Jewish sentiment and stigma culminated in 1938 with Kristallnacht, the Night of Broken Glass. Jewish synagogues were burned and Jewish shops had their windows smashed. In the earlier 30s, Hitler and the SA had tried to institute a boycott of Jewish businesses, but no one cared yet enough, and so people just went about their businesses and ignored the orders. Once that happened, Hitler stepped back a little bit and started instituting the Nuremberg Laws and further dehumanizing the Jews until he got his population to a point at which they could take more violent action. The Nazis used three conceptual switches in order to separate out their victim groups. They were considered foreigners, they were considered mortal threats, which is further broken down into three motifs. Uh, mortal threats as in a race war fought between the Aryans and everyone else. Mortal threats as in a foreign invasion, specifically in the case of communists and Jews and the Romani. Um, and mortal threats as in a disease, specifically of the German body politics weakening and attempting to destroy the greatness of Germany from the inside. Um, and then the third conceptual switch was to view them as subhuman. So there's a weird dichotomy here as uh, our victim groups are simultaneously seen as both a superhumanly powerful threat and also as a less than human piece of scum that should be ground beneath our boot. It doesn't make sense when you think about it for more than 30 seconds, but it doesn't have to. This is propaganda, and the point of propaganda is to elicit an emotional response, specifically of fear or anger or hate, three emotions that we will often cause human beings to lash out violently. The Nazis saw genocide as a rational choice to defend their country. The decision to commit genocide became nothing more than an application of game theory to political decision-making, wherein genocide became the dominant strategy. Any Jew who could flee the country did so during this time. Thousands of Jews fled, but many were completely unable to. In 1939, when the German occupation of Poland began, they began rounding up all Polish Jews and placing them in ghettos, self-contained little pieces of the city where they could uh, concentrate the Jews, although these weren't concentration camps per se. Jewish ghettos were surrounded by high walls and barbed wire and served to isolate the Jews from the German population. The now vacant houses of the Jews who'd been forced to move to these ghettos were given to ethnic Germans living outside of Germany. Starting in 1939, the Nazis selected 70,000 people with mental or physical disabilities for their T4, or euthanasia program. This served as a pilot program for the Holocaust. It was how they field-tested methods of slaughter. The only problem for the Nazis was that this program was heavily protested by various German religious figures. Uh, the T4 program officially ended in 1941, but continued in secret until 1945. The problem with the T4 program, uh, and why it failed to work, was that disabled people, whereas uh, the Nazis saw them as useless eaters or lives unworthy of life, they were the brothers, sisters, cousins, fathers, etc. of ethnic Germans. And it's one thing to normalize the idea of killing the foreign, invasive, subhuman Jew, and it's another thing to normalize the killing of your brother who, you know, just happens to be somewhat cognitively impaired. Still, the T4 program killed almost 275,000 handicapped people. While the Western Front of the Holocaust would rely on ghettos and concentration camps, the genocide on the East in the Soviet Union and Soviet-controlled territories was different. 
It was called the Holocaust of Bullets. Over 500,000 Jews were shot by mobile killing squads called Einsatzgruppenwund, uh, most notably groups like Police Battalion 101, which was made up of just middle-aged men. These weren't career soldiers, they weren't hardened murderers, they were just like dads who would grill for you on weekends and be out there mowing the lawn with their socks and sandals. Just regular people who were convinced to, you know, engage in the wholesale slaughter of European Jews. Many of them were able to do this because they became uh, functional alcoholics and drug addicts to deal with the horror of what they were doing, but pretty much all of them willingly participated in this. Beginning in June of 1941, the Auschwitz concentration camp, Auschwitz being probably the most famous of all concentration camps, began experimenting with mass killing methods. They successfully killed 500 Soviet prisoners with a pesticide gas called Zyklon B. The SS soon placed a massive order with a German pest control company for the gas. The deportation of prisoners to concentration camps began in late 1941, and the first mass gassings began at the Bergen-Belsic camp on March 17, 1942. All in all, there were six major killing centers. Auschwitz-Birkenau, Sobibor, Treblinka, Majdanek, Chelmo, and Bergen-Belsic. There were over 60 camps of various kinds, but these six were the ones that focused purely on slaughter. Each concentration camp came equipped with massive gas showers and a crematoria for disposing the bodies. The crematoria would become, or will become, very important when people try and deny the Holocaust later because, as is often said, no body, no crime, and most of the bodies are gone because they were just burned into ash. Despite suffering from diseases and starvation, the occupants of the Warsaw Ghetto rose up in armed rebellion on April 19, 1943. However, the rebellion only lasted for about a month until May 16th. During the rebellion, 7,000 Jews died and the 50,000 survivors were all sent to concentration camps. While the uprising wasn't successful in what it had intended, liberating the people of the ghetto, it did inspire other ghettos and camps to result it did inspire other ghettos and camps to revolt against the Nazis. The Nazis tried their best to keep the camps a secret, but the absolute scale of them made that impossible. Eyewitness reports of the camps were carried to the allies, the columns of smoke could be seen from miles away, and burning meat could be smelled on the wind. All in all, it's absolutely horrific. We're going to go into a little bit more detail on the death tolls here, so if you don't just want to hear a litany of really depressing numbers, skip maybe two minutes ahead. There were six million Jews killed. Uh, all in all, there were about seven million Soviet civilians killed. 1.3 million of those were Soviet Jews, though. Some of our categories have overlaps, so the numbers are going to be, in total, larger than 12 million, but just keep in mind that there's overlap here. 3 million Soviet prisoners of war, about 500,000 of which were Jewish soldiers, 1.8 million Polish civilians, 312,000 Serb civilians, 275,000 people with disabilities, 250,000 Romani, 1,900 Jehovah's Witnesses, um, 70,000 people considered repeat criminal offenders and quote-unquote a-socials, and thousands of members 
members of the LGBT community. Total numbers of those are unknown. Roughly 2 million people died in Auschwitz alone. In 1943, Nazi scientist Joseph Mengele began his famous experiments at Auschwitz. Uh, he experimented heavily on twins, injecting them with everything from gasoline to chloroform under the guise of science. Majdanek was the first camp to be liberated. Um, the Soviet army liberated it on July 23rd, 1944. Treblinka, Sobibor, and Belsik were never liberated, but when the war ended, the German army just left the camps and all of the people in them behind after locking the gates. Um, and then they destroyed the camps. Buchenwald was the last camp to be liberated on April 11th, 1945. A token mention has to be made about those Germans who hid Jews or helped them escape. This represents only a very tiny percentage of non-Jews uh, who engaged in rescue behavior. Most German citizens were just passive bystanders, which means that they sided with the Nazis. As Holocaust survivor and famous author Elie Wiesel tells us, we have to pick a side. Silence helps only the oppressors and never the victims. So in situations of uh, rights oppression, uh, government-sponsored brutality, or genocide, if you are not actively siding with the victims, you are siding with the perpetrators. Um, it's also important to mention that anti-Nazi didn't necessarily mean pro-Jew. There were a number of anti-Nazi groups who engaged in wholesale slaughter of Jews themselves. The Nardom Sili Zbrojin, I probably butchered that pronunciation, combined fighting the German army with massacring Jews. Both rescuers and resistance fighters ranked a sense of universal morality, one of the most important factors in regard to their actions. But again, remember, this represents just a very small percentage of the population. Many Jews were forced to continue living in the camps after the war was over because there just was simply nowhere else to put them, and many had to be quarantined with disease. While Hitler couldn't be captured and brought to trial, many top Nazi leaders were arrested and brought to trial in Nuremberg. The Nuremberg trials began on November 20th, 1945, and the various Nuremberg trials indicted 185 people. Only 12 were sentenced to death, 8 were given life in prison, and 77 others had shorter prison sentences. Now, no one at the Nuremberg trial was tried for the crime of genocide. The legal definition of genocide that we went over in episode 1 wouldn't be established until 1948, well after the trials were over. The Nuremberg trials were the first true international criminal tribunal and served as a foundation for the modern international criminal court in the UN. Now, this wraps up our episode on the Holocaust. Next month, we're going to be covering one of the most rapid and low-tech genocides of the 20th century, the Rwandan genocide. If you like what you heard here, follow us on social media at GenostoryPod on Twitter, Facebook.com slash GenostoryPod, or send us an email at GenostoryPod pod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or topics that you'd like to hear about. If you'd like more of just me in your life, you can find me on Twitter at Prof. John Strange, on Facebook at John the Strange colon historian, or now on TikTok at Dr. Hufflepuff. If you're looking for something to read during this quarantine, you can find both of my books, Representations of Genocide in Cartoons and Representations of Genocide in Video Games on Amazon. They are available in both paper book and ebook form Please give those a rate and review while you're at it. Speaking of reviews, we have one new review on Apple Podcasts. Someone 
was very kind enough to give us five stars. That's it. They didn't have anything to say about the podcast. Just five stars. Like it very much. Thank you for that. Unknown and unnamed person, I super appreciate you. Uh, you should please go and rate, review, and subscribe to Jenna Story. We agreed to do this on your favorite podcatcher if you can. It helps us get seen so that other people can find us. Thank you to Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech for our show music. Thank you to the wonderful app Hatchful and my amazing wife for designing and then editing the logo. Um, I'm John, and this has been Jenna Story. We agreed to do this. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.